I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. And we're back. Eric, are you ready for Jurassic Park and the Great Adventure? Oh, yeah. I've been, been waiting for this one. The, myself, too. I don't know about you, but, you know, this is this is the one that I think dragged most people of our age into who Michael Crichton was. Oh, absolutely. Um, the film, Jurassic Park, um, I saw it in theaters, and I was blown away. Just absolutely blown away. And it is what got me into to reading Crichton in the first place. Because I saw this movie and I heard, oh, it's based on a book. Well, I, I've got to have to check that out. And I read the book and thought this was great. I've got to read more by this guy. And uh, and so it began. And so it began from there, huh? So I, um, you've got me there. I did not see this one in theaters. I grew up in a uh, heavily religious family. So we... I'll tell you. So here's the sad thing. So 1993 was the year that this movie came out. It was also the year that I saw my first movie in a movie theater. Unfortunately, it was not Jurassic Park. I remember wanting to see it with my friends and my parents saying no. And then finally, at the end of the year, there's a different movie that came out that my parents are like, all right, okay, we'll go. And I just started seeing movies like crazy. Unfortunately, that movie was the uh, Three Musketeers the, with like Charlie Sheen and stuff like that. That was the oh, first man. movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Um, and so, and I missed it because I'm pretty sure that came out in November, December. I remember being the holidays where Jurassic Park was the summer blockbuster. And so, by months, I missed ever seeing this movie in uh, the theater. And so, I've never seen Jurassic Park in a theater setting, oh, which wow. totally bums me out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some they've got to do a re-release at some point. This is one of those films that they have to they have to go back and at some point, uh, maybe in another few years, maybe when it hits like the. Uh, 30 years or something. <laughs> yeah, the big anniversary type thing. Well, because they did do that for um, um, Back to the Future, and mm-hmm. I saw that in the theater, and that just, even though you've seen that movie a hundred times, was so great in a theater setting with other people laughing and stuff like that, that where I know that Jurassic Park, even today, uh, 24 years later, whatever we are, it would be amazing in the theater and hold up. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it absolutely would. I mean, I watched it, you know, 
on a couple of different formats just to prepare for this show. I watch it on my TV at home. My, the biggest TV I have in my home, which is, I, I think it's a 42 or 43 inch. I don't know. It's not huge, but it's it, it's good sized. Um, and then I also watched it on my phone, you know, so it's like a, a big difference between, you know, going from 40 something inches to five inches, but it still holds up. That's, that's what's great about this film is even yes. though the technology of movie making has definitely progressed since 1993, this movie still holds up. Right. This movie does, and it does it remarkably. Uh, I did the same as you. I watched it on my big TV, and I also watched it on my phone. And even on the big TV, uh, the movie holds up so great. And when we get into some details in the movie, I I found out some fascinating information. But uh, to go along with this, now that I think about it, yeah, next year is going to be like the 25th anniversary of this movie coming up which is just amazing to me that this came out that long ago and still people (laughs) talk about it and everything yeah yeah it's um, i mean it's just a fantastic movie i mean we're not going to uh to sugarcoat that much we both love this movie yes Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's not getting sugarcoated even though i first saw it on rental back in the days of blockbuster and stuff like that on vhs probably it was you know the next year 94 or something like that when i actually saw it Uh, but yes this is the movie that got us both into michael Crichton, and i know i started picking up safir and congo and all these other ones after that um they just totally changed my reading habits before that my reading was all star wars novels so (laughs) I'm with you on that. Uh, I, yeah. I did quite a bit of uh, Star Wars novel reading as well, but uh, I didn't really start that heavily until uh, 98, 99 is when I started getting into those into the Star Wars novels. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a point in early 2000 that I had actually read every Star Wars novel that had been written up to that point. That is an amazing feat. Yeah, wow. It really was. I was, working wow. At, I was working a night shift job at the time where... There was literally 20 to 25 minutes of actual work that I had to mm-hmm. do on a 10-hour shift. And I'm not just talking about like office space style, like I just didn't do anything. I mean, that was literally my job was just to be there just in case. And then for one part part of the day, I had to go change the tapes out in the server room. Yeah, magnetic tapes that backups ran on. So in the middle, you know, just before midnight, I had to go make sure all the tapes were in. And then just after midnight, after the backups ran, I had to go and pull all the tapes and put them in their cases and put the new tapes in for the next day. That was it. That was the only work I had to do in a 10-hour shift. So I spent the rest of it reading. Wow. Well, I, I mean, that would drive me nuts. But, hey, yeah, I mean, that's a good feeling for reading for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good time for me, actually, because I was making decent money and I was reading a lot. I taught myself HTML during that time. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, hey. It worked out well for me. There you go, yeah. Well, and speaking of reading, so this book, uh, after rereading this and re-listening, uh, well, not re-listening, just listening for the first time to the audiobook, which, by the way, was, what, over 15 hours long? Yeah, yeah. It was, took me, uh, I, I listened at work, and I, uh, it took me three shifts to to get through the whole thing. So To get through the whole thing, yeah. You know, and I had, I had two airplane flights, and I still didn't get through the whole thing, but I blamed that on my kids I was flying with <laughs> um, on the airplane flights. But, yeah, so this is a, this is a long listen. 
but still a very good list. And I was telling Eric earlier that still my favorite audio so far has been The Great Train Robbery. Um, you just I just got more enveloped with the accent and everything of the guy who did the reading for The Great Train Robbery. But this is still a very good read. I Listen or read. Either way, if you don't like reading, then listen. This is an amazing novel. And the fascinating thing, and we're going to jump all over the place, is I did not realize until rereading it now just how much of this book was not in the original movie. Yes. the This one, uh, save for the TV miniseries version of The Andromeda Strain, is probably the biggest gap between the film version and written version, I think. Yes. Um, that Andromeda Strain miniseries really went off the rails in the second half and just had nothing to do with the book. So um, <laughs> this at least, at least it keeps the base story from the book. Yeah, right, right, and and there's and there is just a lot to it. You know, they they've got most all the same characters. Uh, the only you know interesting between the two change. I was looking for changes and I found a couple, but one of them was the um, Samuel L. Jackson's character, John Arnold, is called Ray in the film, but his name is John in the book. Um, I did not catch that. Yes, I, yeah, I, he's, he's John Arnold the in the name. book and Ray Arnold in the uh, in the film. Uh, so for whatever reason, but you know, but otherwise, I mean, deaths are different. There's yeah. three, yeah, three different characters. I think that it was that was in the book that are not in the film. Uh, so it, it it definitely and the halfway point. There was a lot of changes just from the beginning, but the halfway point for sure when. Um, Grant is off with the two kids is a hundred percent different uh, between the two of them. Yeah, quite a bit of difference there, and I think a lot of that comes down to length. Um, if yeah. they were to film the way it went down in the book, it, it would be a four or five hour movie, mm-hmm. um, as evidenced by the fact that we did end up with scenes from this book in the later movies. Like they even yes. took scenes that are like, "Ah, hey, well, this is basically we kind of kind of wish we could have put this <laughs> in the." Uh, in the first movie, but we didn't have time, so hey, why don't we why don't we throw it into this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few other major differences. Um, the biggest one to me, the biggest difference that they that they changed from the novel to the movie, is the entire premise of any of the animals getting off the island. In the book, it's right from the very beginning shown that there are animals getting off this island. It's happened. Yes. And then they find out it's happened even more. And then they're, you know, part of the whole thing with uh, Grant and the kids is they see raptors on the boat leaving the island. <laughs> and they have to, they're trying to get back in time to call the boat and stop it from reaching the mainland. Right. Um, all of which, major, major plot point, I think, completely taken out of the movie. Mm-hmm. In the movie, they're contained on the island in, yep. completely. There's never any even hint of the possibility that they've gotten off the island. No, because the ho- the whole point of this visit from these scientists, you know, from Malcolm and Grant and Sattler in the book is because they th- there there's an issue. There are all these other complaints going on and it's a security thing and so that's why they're there and they do have that similarly in the film because they're getting sued because the one guy gets killed from the raptor in the very, very beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a similar premise, but it, there's no hint to all the dinosaurs missing, which brings into um, there's no hint to the number of dinosaurs that they have in the film, yes. where in the book that's a very big thing, 238 or whatever the number was. 
um, yeah, I thought that and was how they count them and everything like that. That that's throughout the whole film or the whole book. I mean, yeah, that was always a big question for me um, when I saw the film and hadn't read the the novel yet. I wondered. I was like, okay, well, he finds these eggs out in the park, so there's obviously extra animals. Like, don't they have people out there counting them? Don't they have cameras? Don't they have? Do they have uh, trackers in the in the animals that they've put into the park? Mm-hmm. And if they see an animal and it's like, hey, wait a minute, this one doesn't have a tracker. Why is that? Um, in the book, they kind of delve into that a little bit. The animals that they've put in the park have tattoos or markings somewhere on their on their bodies, as well as they have these motion sensors and cameras set up to identify and count the animals in the park, which at the time of the writing of the novel was probably pretty high tech. Uh, nowadays, you know, if they were to do this right now, all of the animals would have an RFID tracker and they would know the exact location of each and every one of them at all times. They'd have cameras and sensors and everything. And if there was a single uh, animal out of place, they would know about it instantly. Right. not saying it's a good idea for them to try to do this, <laughs> but there are some security precautions now that they did not have then. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was interesting that in the movie they don't, they don't really get into that at all. No, they don't. And the cool thing, you mentioned the RFID trackers and everything like that, um, is that Crichton, thinking forward, even then if you had RFID trackers in all of your dinosaurs to track them, that wouldn't solve the issue. No, it the, would only tell you if you were, if you were missing. Yeah, that, but that was the, the big thing is they were, they were focused on determining if, someone, some, if an animal went missing. They yeah. didn't think to prepare themselves for the possibility of additional animals because they felt they had already built in enough fail-safes. Right, yeah. with the female-only park that they had, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, plus, also in the book, they indicate that they irradiated the animals to try to render them sterile, even though they were all female as well. Like They, mm-hmm. they even went to that extra step, um, but they point out in the book that that's not necessarily, you know, first of all, you're, you're not 100% sure where the <laughs> organs are going to be as far as you know what you need to irradiate to do that and it's it's an unreliable method but right. they were sure that by making them all female they were going to be fine yeah and i love it towards the end when um it's because they've been telling the computer that they had 238 animals so the computer was counting to 238 and then stopping <laughs> and the the book reads heavily on at this time, you know, he wrote this book uh, in the late '80s, so personal computers were out and about. I mean, I can remember the first computer. My dad was heavily into computers uh, in the early '80s, and so I can remember having personal computers in our house, mm-hmm. and they were prevalent. And he saw them as a controlling thing, and as us relying so much on them. And you know, my God, if he was alive today, what would he think? <laughs> but, um, but he he talks about because the whole point of this is this park is, and they do mention this in the film this park is self-sufficient you could run this park with three people you know everything's you don't need to pay for all the people for the ticket takers and the people to give out the food and all this stuff and so we're so heavily relied on the computer system and they didn't realize that oh we'll just tell it to count and then it starts counting and they have over 300 animals and then they're pretty much shitting themselves at the fact that (laughs) this whole time uh, the computer was doing just exactly what you wanted it to do. And it, even the fall down and the breakdown of it is, you know, you can rely so heavily on computers. And I feel like even though this is about the question of DNA and bring something extinct back to life and all that stuff, there is a bigger undertone on the reliance of computers 
and having them do everything for you and control your life and stuff that if you read it today kind of makes it even scarier when you think about you know my google home that's sitting in my kitchen that i talk to <laughs> when i have questions and you know the lights that can automatically turn on and how my phone is synced with my laptop that's synced with my work computer Alexa, and my photos are, are everywhere the yeah still secure <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh so so i loved that in the book that you know it and when we talk about it, he also talks about that some in, the, in Congo. But you can feel in his writing this, where this is more about uh, the point in his life where he sees something that he wants to talk about. It's almost mm-hmm. it's political without being political about the state of where we're at today. And he gets even more political once you get into later books like State of Fear and everything like that. Yeah. But uh, you can see this is very different from the previous uh, books that we've read so far that have been into uh, made into film adaptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this one, he definitely is bringing up the, the computer thing again. You know, we, we see that as a running theme for him. Um, and he especially is bringing up um, the genetics in this one. Mm-hmm. The, this whole, the power of genetic engineering. Um, you know, he, he's talking about how it can, yeah, all of this money is being poured into this technology almost completely unchecked. It's being done not by pure scientists, but by corporations. It's being yeah. done specifically to make money, not being done and then figuring out how to make money off of it later. It's being done specifically to create profits right here, right now. And how you can tell in his writing that he feels that this is extremely dangerous. It's an extremely powerful thing that these people are just playing with. Um, so you definitely get those two undertones in this book. The The computer mm-hmm. thing is, is more of an underlying thing to me, I think. It, I think it's kind of reiterating <laughs> what he's already written about, yeah. whereas the genetic thing is, is new and fresh. And I, I feel like that's more what he was pushing in this book than the, than the computer thing specifically. I think the computer thing was more, to me, it read more as just an undertone as far as, you know, he's like, I, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to reiterate that all these computers, maybe we don't need to rely on them so much. Um, but let's talk about this genetic stuff, okay? <laughs> That's how it came off to me a little bit. Yeah, well, and if you think about it, that would make sense because I feel like the character of Malcolm, uh, it, well, first off, I'm just going to say Malcolm and Muldoon are my favorite characters in both the book and the film. For sure. But Malcolm, I I feel like Malcolm was kind of uh, Michael Crichton. Like, this is him telling you, hey, you know, with the chaos theory and the dangers of all this stuff uh, to where, yeah, I could see it's, it's that uh, – I wish I could remember the line. Malcolm, one of them, it was about how, you know, you're just taking this technology. You haven't earned it. And they talked about it yes. more in the book, you know, about how you – when you're a, a black belt, you've mastered it at this point, you know. and But yeah, you're he, just taking this technology. You haven't mastered anything. Yeah, he, he, they touch on it briefly in the movie. Um, he talks about you're standing on the shoulders of giants to accomplish what you've done. You, you, you've taken mm-hmm. what uh, others have done and taken the next step, but you didn't earn the knowledge, so you don't wield the power. In the book, he goes on further to explain that a little bit, and I think they don't fully explain it in the movie. And when you read the book, you're like, oh, okay, now I get what he was saying in the movie. Because in the in the book, he does go on and talks, he talks about how, you know, it's not the ninth degree black belt that can kill with his bare hands that usually ends up killing his wife. It's the guy who gets mad and goes out and buys a gun who ends up killing his wife because he bought that power. The power to kill was not earned 
through discipline. Right. It was purchased in the form of a Saturday Night Special, mm-hmm. is what he called it, which uh, I believe is a thirty-eight snub nose, if I'm remembering my uh, gun parlance <laughs> yeah. uh, correctly. Yes. Um, but uh, <laughs> so he's he's talking about the difference between okay, this person, you know, these two people have the ability to kill. One person mm-hmm. has learned through many, many years of dedicated training how to kill with his bare hands and thus has acquired the discipline to not want to do it. Whereas this other person buys a gun, instantly has the power, and of course, because he instantly has the power, instantly wants to use it as well. And right. He's talking about the difference in scientists having this, you know, because they don't start from the beginning, which honestly, I mean, he makes a point, but at the same time, how far, how advanced could we possibly get if every scientist had to start from the very beginning? That's, not how, that's not how progress happens. It's just not. Um, and, of course, Malcolm's point is exactly that. He, he's talking about in the book about how, you know, it takes the same amount of time to clean a house now as it did in the 1930s. Even though mm-hmm. we have dishwashers and washing machines and this, that, and the other, you know, have all this technology that is supposed to save time and make things easier, yet still takes the same amount of time to clean a house. Why is right. that? Where's the progress if if that's the case? Mm-hmm. And That's one of my favorite uh, lines in the whole book, the paragraph where he's talking about the 1930s and how – uh, it's not saving time. Where is the progress in all this stuff? And it really made you think because, man, yeah, I've got all this technology. Uh, because then he goes even further back to um, uh, caveman type area where you know you're spending twenty hours of your week uh, collect, getting food for the family, and the rest of the time you're just doing you know whatever type of thing. And I mean, he's very generally broad ranging, but the same thing. I mean, you think about today. I, you know, why are you pushing yourself and working this 50, 60 hours? Are you getting uh, ahead and stuff like that? It, that whole paragraph kind of made you rethink a few things. Yeah. yeah. I, I read that and I thought, man, if I could only work 20 hours a week, that would be great. But then what would I do with the rest of my time if I didn't have Netflix? <laughs> so, you know, and <laughs> if I, I only there, worked there's... 20 hours, what would I do with the rest of my time? I'd go crazy. <laughs> And that's what's really neat about the book is it does make you think of different things like that. Uh, so it's a generally really good feel. But, yeah, I feel like Malcolm, that was Michael Crichton just kind of saying, you know, hey, this is what I think of all this. Um, and, I, and I agree with it. I mean, it, it, you are right. It, for us to advance, we've got to just jump in with the technology and just start using it and figure out what to do with it. I mean, it, any great inventor does not – I mean – we didn't understand that lightning was electricity or anything like that. We're just just throw a kite up and see what happens, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you didn't you any great inventor, yes, they're jumping over a cliff and they're going blindly trying something out and we have amazing things for that. Uh so you have to do that, but at the same time, yeah, you get into something like this. Like I could think of all kinds of neat things you could do with DNA and stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should do them. Yeah, or anything, exactly. You know? It's uh, another great line from both the book and the movie, it was in there, um, delivered a little differently, and I actually have to say I like the way it was delivered. Uh, most of Malcolm's lines, I think, were gra- drastically improved by giving them to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I would, I, would, I would agree. Jeff Goldblum, I mean, he yeah, just... You, you give him the lines, and suddenly they're ten times better than they already were. Um, yeah. But when he talks about it, when he says your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. If they should, yep. And that, you know, he says that in the book too, but it's a little more long-winded and it's, it doesn't have the, the pop, the impact that it does mm-hmm. in, the, in the movie. Um, 
Goldblum was perfect for this part, even though he doesn't physically meet the description that Crichton gives Malcolm at all. Um, right. You know, the first thing I noticed is that they, they mention that Malcolm is bald in the mm-hmm. book. It's pretty much as far from 1990s from... Goldblum as you could possibly get. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> he he kind of had the Jufro going, <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, he, was, he was quite proud of it. Um, yeah. So they so they went with it. They they turned the characters like okay, well you know what we've got Goldblum for this part, so let's do this. Let's make him. Let's let's let him run with it. And they, and they gave he it to him. Del- yeah he delivered it amazingly. And I and I think that's another reason why Malcolm is one of my favorite characters. I, because yeah he is saying all this stuff and this chaos theory stuff, but uh, Jeff Goldblum just really sells you on the character with the delivery of his lines in the film. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the I wouldn't say that Malcolm is one of my favorite characters in the book, but he definitely is one of my favorite characters in the movie. What's your favorite character in the book then? In the book, uh, it's actually kind of tough because uh, honestly, I, here's the thing, and this is where this is one of those few times that right. we'll probably talk about when I, even though I do love this book, I'm not don't get me wrong here, don't don't twist it around. I'm not disparaging the book. However. This is one of the very few times when I actually enjoy the movie more than the book, just individually. Okay. All right. And I think part of that is because they made the characters, to me, I was pulled into the characters more in the film than I was in the book. Well, you know why. I don't know if it was because there were fewer characters, and so there were more concentrated character traits. Uh, Mm -hmm. With the book, it was more spread out. There were more people. Um, Yep. So it was very, very tough. I think my favorite character probably in the book is Grant. Okay. Okay. However, you know, in the movie as well. I, I like Grant in the movie. Um, but, yeah, definitely in the book it's a little bit harder to get into the characters, I feel. It's not super difficult. Like I said, I, I don't want anybody to get me, get the wrong impression. I do like this book. I just I feel they did such a good job with the movie that it's really hard to compare. This, this one was a hard mm-hmm. one for me at the same time as I, I was excited for this episode. But at the same yeah. time it was very hard because I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to pick apart something that I love both the movie and the book. I'm going to have to pick it apart to find anything to, to complain about (laughs) or to discuss really. Um, so, and that would, it's a valid complaint because if you do look at the list, I mean, you know, like in a case of need and stuff, you get two, three characters you got to pay attention to and Andromeda strain. There's what, four or five scientists you're paying attention to. I I mean, if you look at this list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 40, there's 15 different characters in the book. I mean, it got, it's so bad that, um, uh, uh, Gennaro, the lawyer in the film is actually more so Gennaro and this other character, Ed Regis from the book combined into one character. I was going to say, you know, yeah, yeah. And, And then they completely cut out, um, Guterres, who's in the book, who's in the beginning and then also at the end of it in the book. And he's part of the second book that Michael Crichton wrote. He's a main character, but he's not in the first one at all. So I do get that from the book standpoint because you're you're not given the time to really fall in love with or capture a character. I mean, if you are, it's Grant's because you're paying so much attention to him because he's with the kids trying to get them through all these scenarios, which we're not just talking about a T-Rex, folks. No, he's getting through the raptors. He's getting through the pterodactyls and the Avery. Oh, yeah, the thing from Jurassic Park 3, that was in the book. You yes. know? <laughs> so. Yeah, there were there were several scenes from this book that ended up in Jurassic Park in the Lost World movie, and there was at least one scene from this book that ended up in Jurassic Park 3, specifically that, that Avery, that aviary scene. Um, the aviary the and then the uh, river. Train. I feel like the river was definitely in the third one. Yeah. Well, it was kind of, uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was kind of a combination because that's how 
that's how it went in this book was that the river runs through the aviary and that's why they were in there in the first place that's why you know mm-hmm. they, they got on the river they said oh hey this river runs straight up to where we need to be which is exactly what they say in Jurassic Park 3 it's like oh well this river will take us to where we need to go so let's take this river it wasn't exactly the same because in the in the book they were trying to get to the center where the visitor center was where the visitor center the, was yeah in jurassic park 3 they're trying to get to the coast <laughs> where they can get the hell off the island <laughs> yeah <laughs> different island as well but uh mm-hmm. you know so but the same general premise they're like hey this river is flowing exactly where we need to go hey let's get on it yeah. Um, and so that's what they do. And in both the you know, Jurassic Park, the book, and Jurassic Park 3, the film, the river ends up taking them through the aviary um, where we see the, the cerodactyls and the pterodactyls that uh, didn't appear in the original movie at all. At all, yeah. And then in the second, in Jurassic Park 2, uh, The Lost World, uh, the one big thing for me was the beginning because the compi scene with the little girl is directly from the book. Granted, in one, they've got a yacht in the film. In the book, they're driving through, you know, on a four-wheel drive vehicle or whatever. But it's the same scene. It's the compi showing up there abiding her and everything. Yeah, it's it's almost identical in the scene. You know, the biggest yep. difference is that uh, in the book, in Jurassic Park, the book, this scene is just the mom, dad, and the little girl, and that's it. In mm-hmm. Jurassic Park 3, it's this rich family with, like, 15 servants and, and all this. and But basically, you know, other than that, it's the same. It's this little girl yeah. from a rich family. They're visiting this beach. She goes off to, uh, you know, be by herself and runs into the compies, which we didn't see the compies at all in the original movie. No, which brings us to life to who dies and who doesn't die. It does. Uh, another scene from the book that I feel they drew from they did you know it's not the exact same scene because it's a completely different character but I feel they pulled this scene from the book to put into the second movie and that's a scene where a person happens to fall down a hill hurt their ankle and then get attacked and eaten by a multitude of compies yes interesting thing is in the book that person is Hammond yeah, John Hammond <laughs> dies. Well, if you want, I mean, there are differences between the film and the book, but I think John Hammond's character is probably the most glaring one. I mean, besides the fact we have, obviously, characters from the book that are not in the film at all, yeah. John Hammond in the book is not a nice guy. I mean, he's like no. an he's like evil Walt Disney is what he is <laughs> because he's all about, and he doesn't care that these dinosaurs are killing people or anything. He's already thinking about in the book uh, the next park and building it up and uh, I mean he almost doesn't care that much about his grandkids that are there or anything like that even though he invited them um, and all this stuff so he's a very very black and white different character where in the film he's a loving grandfather type and uh, just the biggest thing I think kind about, yeah yeah the, the the biggest difference I think between the two characters from the from the Hammond character in the book and in the movie is that in the end of the movie, while he lives, he's also changed his mind. You know, he's mm-hmm. decided this isn't a good plan, and he's he's ready to move on. Even though, you know, near the end of the movie, he's still thinking, He's you know, he's still got a little bit of the book Hammond in him. He's still thinking, next time I'm going to do this, next time I'm going to do this. And that's when, when Sattler's like, are you kidding me right now <laughs> right yeah and that's when that he ice kind cream of, scene yep yeah that's when he kind of comes around when she's like you are out of your dang mind no and he starts thinking about it and that's where you, you see him come around 
in the in the book there is none of that if he hadn't died he would have tried again he would have tried again guaranteed because he's still you know he was just like okay well we got it under control we're good now we know what to hey now we know what not to do you know basically that's (laughs) that's his that's his character cold and greedy and he just he, he knew all the problems and the issues were somebody else and now we're going to do this again and it's going to be better and so he had to die in the in the book and in the end of it so that yeah that that was your biggest one i will tell you another thing in the film that i really liked now that i think about it ian malcolm's character was dressed all in black and hammond's character was dressed all in white there was kind of a cool uh yes uh, yeah, this thing kind going of, on there with yeah, that. yeah. The, this kind of white hat black hat type of thing except it was reversed from right. what you would think it would normally be. Um, one thing that the while we're talking about the compies, mm-hmm. did you notice this is uh, this isn't one of my big questions. I do have a couple of I do have one big question from from the book and one big question from the movie that I don't know if I want to call them a plot hole necessarily, but they never tracked well with me. Even after multiple readings, multiple watchings, I still have this question. So I want to know if you can answer them. This isn't one of those. This is more of just a did you notice kind of thing? Okay. In the beginning of the book, when we're dealing with the compies and the little girl, they describe the bites as extremely painful. They mm-hmm. explain that there's something in the saliva that, you know, is serotonin that, that's going to make it hurt even more than just a normal bite would. And that's part of how they incapacitate their victims is, you know, by these bites are extremely painful. And, you know, so that's why this little girl screaming her full head off when she gets bit. Yeah, Later they talked the about book, the protein, the proteins and stuff like that, like a snake venom. Yeah, they yeah, mentioned all that in the book. Yeah, they said it's got something in common with cobra venom and all this. Mm-hmm. In the end of the book, when Hammond dies, he's talking about it be having a narcotic effect. He's talking about he, how, it, how the compy bites uh, have this narcotic effect, and that he's barely feeling them. And I was like, wait a minute, when did that change? <laughs> You know what? I had not put in the two of those together because they were on, they were bookends. But you're right. It, he was talking about how he he was like drifting off to sleep. Yeah. Like it was a numbing thing, not a painful thing. So, my question on that is: Is this a difference we're seeing between the compies that they bred versus the compies that bred in the wild? Versus the more was, was he bit with by the ones that were bred in the park? Because I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's the wild ones that got off the island. And we're on this other, uh, we're on the shore biting this little girl. Yeah. That's, you know, just I'm making that assumption because mm-hmm. they didn't, you know, they said they found one of the bodies and it didn't have any markings on it. Um, the only thing they did find is that, you know, part of the DNA, the DNA markers had some things that pointed towards possible genetic engineering, but they didn't really get into details. Yeah, they blamed they blamed it on uh, you know just something in the lab type of thing. Yeah, yeah, they, that's what they thought it was extent, a yeah. contaminant. They thought it was uh, mm-hmm. you know some kind of cross contamination or something like that. But yeah, I no, thought it was but interesting yeah, that they, if that was the the ones them. that were breeding themselves and that was the you know the the natural way they changed or whatever. But you're right. Yeah, I I did not realize that they totally changed that up on the compies' uh, poison or whatever you'd want to call it, the saliva. Hmm. I noticed a couple of things in the book that I was going to point out, and I did a little bit of research on in the book. And he mentions it in the film, too. Uh, they talk about how the voiceover for the vehicles, they spared no expense. It was Richard <laughs> Kiley. Yes. 
yes. you know, and so I, you know, so I looked it up, and you know, obviously Richard Kiley is a real person, mm-hmm. Tony Award winner. He had a huge like 40, 50 year career, but he was the narrator of the 1986 Planet Earth documentary that PBS yep. did, and did a lot of narration. And he is the actual voice of the Jurassic Park vehicles in the movie Jurassic Park, Richard Kiley. So yeah. I mean, uh, Michael Crichton wrote him into the book, <laughs> and then Steven Spielberg asked him to be the actual voiceover. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty cool little factoid there. <laughs> yeah, uh, evidently it's the f- he is the first person to ever have been written as a real person into a fictional novel and then later play himself in the movie adaptation of that novel. Yeah, no. The, uh, he's the was... first one of, and evidently it's only happened like three times and the other times were in like Bridget Jones movies with uh, Colin Firth or something. So it's yeah. like, yeah, whatever, those don't count. This no. is, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that was way, way cool. Um, and then knowing full well that we have a new Michael Crichton novel coming out in May, I was super curious because I knew kind of the background of this new Michael Crichton novel. In the book, he mentions Othniel Marsh, who was one of the original in the 1800s, you know, uh, people who was digging for dinosaurs. And sure as shit, the dragon teeth model coming out by Michael Crichton follows uh, Othniel Marsh's apprentice. And so he already had tons of research, you know on this Othniel Marsh guy and dinosaur digging and everything like that. Right. They, that's where Dragon Teeth came from, was his research he was doing when he was writing Jurassic Park. Right on. So yeah, it was I'm a really cool tie-in to, to see that. Gonna, we're definitely... Well, th- we'll probably need to have an episode to talk about that, even though there's not a film. And you know, who knows if they will make a film or not. There's, you know, book's not even out, and there's no discussion on that yet. But we will probably need to, to sit down and talk about that book when it comes out. Yeah, no, we will. Well, and, and so speaking of that, so this book came out in 1990 and this movie came out in 1993. Now, just so you know, that's not enough time to do filming in pre-production and post-production or anything like that. The rights to this were bought before the book was published. Mm-hmm. So they knew so because they were already doing pre-production stuff in 1989, 1990 for this film. Well, didn't he well write the original draft? Um, not not necessarily a draft, but the the story that the novel was eventually based on was something that he wrote in like eighty two or eighty three. It, it was nineteen eighty three because yeah. he originally wrote it and it was about pterodactyls. But yeah, it was an original screenplay he wrote in nineteen eighty three. So he already had, you know, this background thing, and he. He and Steven Spielberg had already met because Spielberg is the one who gave him a tour during the filming of Andromeda Strain. (laughs) So they had already met and knew each other. And at the time, there was discussion of them working on this feature film for ER, which eventually they ended up making into the TV show ER. So there's just this really cool tie-in between Steven Spielberg and Michael Crichton. But yes, this was such a huge thing. So I'm not going to be surprised if somebody picks up on the Dragon Teeth. I, there's been, I can't remember what production company, but I, it was Micro uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all these rumors about it becoming a film, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. So that one's still out there. So we're still going to get some more Michael Crichton uh, movie adaptations. They're, they're still out there, I uh, especially as he's coming out with new books like Pirate Latitudes and stuff that are coming out posthumously. Yeah. I I, th- I think I'd really like to see a prey movie. I would too. That would be. I really would. That would be quite interesting, uh, especially in the current political climate. I think that would be <laughs> quite interesting to see. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, so talking about the movie, um, you and I both made a similar list of who dies and who doesn't die. 
So yeah, I made a list. I went a little bit differently about it. I mean, you had listed all the characters. You went a little bit more thorough than I did. I just made a quick list of um, the survivors okay. <laughs> because it was okay. easier because there were so so many fewer of them, uh, especially in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically in the in the book, as far as I recall, with the exception of anybody who may have gotten off the island uh, previously, which you know, basically just whoever was was on the boat. Um, which in the in the book they didn't have the whole support staff of the island getting off the island in advance um, because of uh, the hurricane or the storm coming, which right. they they built that into the movie. So we have this whole group of people that worked on this island who got off and are not in, including uh, Doctor Wu. Doctor Wu, mm-hmm. we who we later see in uh, Jurassic World <laughs> comes back. Right. Um, so that is one of the people who. I believe does not make it in the book. Yes, he um, he dies by a raptor in the book. Yes, <laughs> Doctor Wu bites it. Um, interesting survivors from the book that we didn't get in the movie. Muldoon. Yes, Muldoon gets off. <laughs> One of my favorite. I love him. His big hunter. I you know I love his his line in the uh, in the movie too. But yeah, he lives. In the book, but then they kill him off in the film, which was really sad to me because I liked him a lot. Yeah, I definitely liked him better in the movie um, because they took away, you know, his one big negative aspect that they gave him in the book. They took that away to make him a little bit better in the movie. I think in the movie, yes, um, yeah, yeah, because in the book he's uh, described as an alcoholic. He's always drinking he, from the. He's always drinking the entire the time. You know, like he's responsible for all these people's lives and safety, and he's drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We don't get that in the movie. In the movie, they make him just this super badass, and it's, right. it's pretty cool. But um, in the book, he's he's more of one of these traditional, how you would think of these big game hunters. Um, he almost seems more like, to me, the book version of Muldoon is more like the the guy whose name I can't recall right now oh, from the second movie, from the Lost World movie. Yeah. The guy who wants to hunt the T-Rex. Like that's that's mm-hmm. all he wants. He's going to do all this work for free as long as he gets to hunt the T-Rex. As long as he gets to hunt the big one, yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, the book Muldoon seems more like that guy to me than the movie Muldoon. Yeah. Um, not quite on the same level of assholery, but <clears throat> you know, more towards that. Um, right. But I do find it interesting that they decided to kill him in the movie when he lived through the book. Um, yeah. You know, you got to switch places with him, and I guess, you know, because... Yeah, well, and <laughs> and then Wu, yeah, because Dr. Wu in the book dies. So, yeah, you've got a couple of switches there, yeah, uh, which I'm okay with because I really liked uh, Dr. Wu in Jurassic World, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's good that we had him to, to bring back and tie in Jurassic World. It, it definitely needed some tie-in to the original to, to, to solidify it, I think, in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, especially considering they basically ignored the second two movies when they made Jurassic World. They kind of yeah. just took it as, like, we're just making this as a sequel to the first movie, and we're going to kind of ignore that those other two movies happened, as many moviegoers did. Right. Um, <laughs> little preview for our Lost World episode. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's going to be a very different episode than this one. Not near as much respect. Uh, Gennaro. The lawyer dies in the film. Now, he is a completely different character than in the book, you know. I mean, in the book, he's this big, muscular guy. He even fights one of the raptors, you know, mm-hmm. punching it or whatever. So, very different character, but he gets killed off in the film. Yeah, and he Does manages not to, to survive the, the book. However, as we said, Gennaro and um, 
Ed Regis. Regis, who mm-hmm. doesn't appear in, in the movie, they kind of merged those characters for the Gennaro of the movie, I feel. So right. you could kind of say that, That's especially true. in the fact of, you know, just the fact that Regis is the one that runs away from the from the T-Rex and the when they're stuck in the cars and by the T-Rex paddock, he's the one that gets up and runs away, not Gennaro. Mm-hmm. And so they took they definitely took that portion of the Regis character and gave it to Gennaro and that's ultimately how he ends up dying. So that's I, I can see why they did that from book to movie because they kind of merged those characters and one of those characters did die in the book. Yeah, and he did die by a T-Rex, which Dennis Nedry and Ar- John Arnold, or Ray Arnold in the film, uh, they both die in book and movie. And they both die the same way. You know, uh, Arnold's character died by raptors in the book and died by raptors in the film. Yeah. So they died in similar ways. I did read a uh, fact that John Arnold's character, um, Samuel Jackson, was supposed to fly back to Hawaii to film him running away. He was originally supposed to be running away from them, and they attack him. But because of Hurricane uh, Iniki that hit during filming, it destroyed the set, so they couldn't even film that scene. That's why it's just his arm <laughs> is all that's kind of left type of thing. They, oh, told, they had to totally refilm that one. Yeah, yep. But it did give us yet another uh, Laura Dern mouth scene. Uh, yeah. Laura Dern's mouth in this film deserves an Oscar all its own. <laughs> Her expressiveness in this film is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Sattler from the book is definitely different. Um, she's definitely described as younger. And an interesting thing, they always left it kind of a little bit ambiguous in the movie, I felt, mm-hmm. as far as whether or not Grant and Sattler were an item. Were an item. There's that one scene where Grant seems to say that they are, but he doesn't, he, he just, he's just like, yeah. Like, they it hint seems at like it's... he's more trying to shut down Malcolm than he is actually confirming that they're an item. Um, right. Then there is, of course, the scene when they finally, you know, re-meet at the visitor center and she, you know, jumps up on him and hugs him and stuff. But that could be just attributed to the emotion of the time. You know, that doesn't confirm anything either. No. Whereas but the they book, hint at it a lot clear. in the film. <laughs> yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, whereas in the book, they make it very clear she's engaged to some other guy. She's a doctor in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, a doctor, doctor in, Chicago. in Chicago. Michael Crichton really is obsessed with doctors in Chicago. <laughs> he is, specifically, she is engaged to a doctor in Chicago, and she is Hammond's student or Grant's student. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they they make it very clear that no, she is not with him. He is not trying to get with her. He's not interested in getting with her. She is his student. That that is the end of their relationship. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I found it interesting that they they chose to change that relationship because it wasn't it wasn't like they did with uh with the case of need where they're adding a love story because they didn't they didn't no. add a love story to it it's just mm. they just left just enough of a hint in there yeah. and i thought that was an interesting choice and ultimately i think it was better than if they had made it blatant like if they had just put them together and made it partly a love story like he's he, oh he's doing this because he's got to save the woman he loves no he's doing this to save himself and these kids that he's with right now. Um, the other change I felt they made between the, the Grant character in the book and the Grant character in the movie, the fact that he supposedly doesn't like kids. Oh, yes, in yeah. In the book, he, he loves kids. He he's does. got no problem with kids. He's, you know, Tim shows up and he starts having a conversation with him right away. Oh, yeah, you read my book, right? You know, how'd you like it? You know, what do you think about that? You know, he's, he's having the conversation with them. In the movie, they specifically, oh, he doesn't like kids. He's trying to get away from this kid who's asking him all these questions. And Sattler forces the kids on him, you know, because it would be, quote unquote, good for him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's an interesting change, and I'm not not 100 percent sure why they made it. You know, just to to give him that little thing where it's like, okay, well, we have this guy who hates kids, and now he's stuck with the kids in the park. So, yeah, and it gave him a slight story arc, you know, because by the end of it, you know, he and the the kids are sleeping on him and everything like that. So, you know, it gives him a little bit of this, okay, getting attached to kids. You can kind of see his character changing. So it gives you that. Not that that was needed or anything like that. I mean, he just, because I thought his character in the book was just fine and great. So Yeah. Um, speaking of kids, though, yes. and it's my favorite fan theory, is the boy in the beginning of the film that he scares because the boy <laughs> thinks it's a six-foot turkey, you know? Yes. My favorite thing is that that boy is a young Owen Grady from Jurassic World, you know? He grows up to respect the uh, Velociraptors and then becomes Chris Pratt's character in Jurassic World, who actually trains the Velociraptors. I like that theory. I, I would yeah. love for that to to be the thing like if they come out and say that that's the thing that would be amazing yeah uh, we'll have to wait for dress world 2 to see if they decide to integrate that little fan tidbit into the into the canon but mm-hmm. um yeah i do i do like that theory i i that would be so great if they did that and then threw back to just a little you know back to the scene where he's just a little fat kid staring up at <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he's got the little claw and Alan's talking about how he's going to gut him. Oh, that would be so great. I, I, I really, really hope they do that in the second one. But yeah, that's my one of my favorite theories. Now, you said you had a couple of questions, though. Uh, I, some big ones here. I do have a couple of questions, and so I want to see if you can answer these for me because I didn't find an answer on my own. From the book first, and this mm-hmm. this is a question that only applies to the book because in the movie, they don't get into this. In the book, the raptors are one of the animals that are breeding in the wild in the park. How? They were supposed to be in the holding pen, separate from all the others. They were never out on their own. How did they How did they breed when they were never out on their own to begin with? How did we end up with all these extra raptors when all of the raptors that were ever created were in this holding pen from the beginning? Did they talk about the raptors being in individual holding pens in the book, or...? No, I think they were. I, I think can... they were together, but they were still in the holding pens. So, if they had bred, all of the bred raptors would be in that holding would pen be also. In that holding <laughs> pen also, yeah. And they're talking about them. They have a nest in the in the island, you know, where they've bred. So it's like, oh no, when did that's that right. Happen? Because because they, you know, they would have had to lose control of at least two, you know, for there to be a breeding pair or a pregnant one. You know, however that works for dinosaurs, they. A, uh, a with <laughs> with egg <laughs> raptor would have had to to escape, and they never uh, they never indicate that there was ever an escaped raptor living freely on the island. In fact, that's one of their biggest worries: is if those raptors ever get out, we are totally hosed. Well, they well, were already the... out; they were out and about and living on the island. Like what? Hmm. That's an interesting theory because you're right. The raptors, when they go to count the eggs and everything like that, they're down in a cave or whatever. So they. Yeah. Two of them had to have escaped at some point in their lives, and they would have noticed the two of them escaping um, the way those counts are. Well, and that totally blows the whole any of the dinosaurs having babies type of thing. You would. Well, the rest of the, you know, the ones that were out, you know, the herbivores especially, the ones that were allowed to live, you know, out in the open and with other dinosaurs, basically they just separated the carnivores so that they wouldn't eat the (laughs) herbivores. But right. the other herbivores, they had living with each other. They had um, the, the compies would definitely have had the opportunity to breed because they let them out everywhere because they were originally bred as a waste control measure. 
they were there to eat the poop of the other ones. Well, you know, so so they were out in the open and free. That would be fine, and that's one of the the biggest breeding was done with the compies. But where did all these raptors come from? So here's the only theory that could make sense of that is the computer. They were relying too heavily on the computers doing the counting. You know, I mean, Muldoon. It's quite possible that Muldoon was not checking uh, the raptors every single day. I mean, that's got to be the only, if you wanted to have it make sense, they were only relying on the computer to do the counting. They didn't have somebody going and checking on the raptors every day to count them or anything like that. They So they could have had raptor babies and then figured out a way to escape. Because they do allude to it, how smart they are in both the book and the film. Yes. Uh, so they eventually did find some way, obviously, to escape their mm-hmm. pen, but as far as the, the breeding and everything like that, it um, yeah. yeah, you're totally right. In both right. the book and the movie, you, we're led to believe that the raptors never got out of their pen until the power went out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only time that they escaped. In the movie, it's fine because they, they find these shells in the wild, but they never say that they were raptors. Right. But in so, you the know, book, it's very different. Yeah, huh. they specifically. And what really caught my attention was the fact that they're showing this list of dinosaurs that, oh, we have we now have more of these than we thought and more of these than we thought and, like, 20 more raptors than we thought and nobody freaked the heck out right then. That would yeah. be my first thing. was like, raptor, holy, we're all dead. <laughs> we need yeah. to leave now. Like, that, that would have been it. I'd have been like, oh, we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go lock myself in a closet until you get a helicopter here and then we are out. Um... So, yeah, I thought that was interesting that, you know, the raptors somehow bred in the wild without us ever having any knowledge of them escaping for long enough to do so. Because they had to be out there <clears throat> long enough for the the tree frog genetics to kick in and at least one of them to change sex to a male and then fertilize the eggs. And then, you know, so it had to be a significant amount of time. Yeah, we're not talking something that just happened in the course of a few weeks real sneaky quick or anything like that, yeah. And they had a significant amount of time, you know. They had five years that they were, uh, you know, on this island and doing this. But, yeah, there, you know, that's, there's, a, uh, there's a plot hole. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, so that, that was my question from the book. Okay. Which, like I said, they didn't address in the movie because they never had the raptors breed in the wild in the, in the first movie. Yeah, I mean, the counting of the animals, period, wasn't even a thing. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the only time they were concerned with how many there were was when the raptors got out, and they specifically said there was only three of them because mm-hmm. they had, uh, what they say, they had eight originally, and then when yeah. they brought the, the big one in, she ate all but two of the others. So they say right from the beginning there's three raptors, and right. that's all we ever have to deal with in the movie is those three raptors. Um yeah, I would have been shitting myself if there was 20 raptors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have been like, seeing uh, what just three does. <laughs> we need to get the heck out of here. I mean, other than, of mm-hmm. course, there were the baby raptors that we saw being born in the in the lab. But, yeah, the new ones. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So that was, that was my question for the book. Okay. In the movie, and this is, again, something that was not done in the book, so this question doesn't apply to the book. In fact, actually... They did it completely differently in the book so that it did not bring up this question. But in the movie, you remember the scene where Sattler and Grant first see the dinosaurs? Yes. Sattler is preoccupied with the giant leaf from Mm -hmm. a plant that is extinct. Right. How? They got dinosaur blood from the mosquitoes, yes, but how did they 
clone, there was no discussion about them cloning extinct plants. How did they, how, where did this plant come from? Mosquitoes they, don't eat the blood of plants. Hmm. Now, didn't they have the extinct plants in the book too, though? They or? had rare plants. They specifically rare said plants. that these plants, okay. while they would have existed in that period as well, they currently only exist in these remote regions of the world, so they would have had to spend a lot of money to go get them to bring them to this island. But okay, they specifically yeah, c- do say that they exist on the Earth today, just in remote areas. Okay, because I, yeah, I remember I remember when they're doing the initial tour of the rooms and stuff like that, and when they get to the the lodge that uh, she is talking about the poisonous of the plants and how it's, you know, what it would do to a kid and just touching it and stuff like that in the book. But you're right; it was never mentioned that it was an extinct. Um, where very visibly, yeah, wow, how yeah, in the, the, in the well? movie she says this species of Veriforma has been extinct extinct since the Cretaceous, is what she says in the movie, and I'm like, wait a minute. And it's always it's it's always popped up in the back of my mind. Like, wait a minute, how? But they don't say anything about cloning plants. <laughs> they never bring to, that up. We need to ask Mister DNA apparently <laughs> to explain to us. <laughs> Which, if you want to talk about characters, that was a character not in the book that's in the film. So, <laughs> bingo, Dino DNA, Dino DNA, yes. <laughs> Yeah, which is great. And it, that was an addition that Spielberg did just because, you know, he needed some way to, in a few minutes, explain yes. the whole thing that takes, you know, an entire huge chapter in the yes. book. So, I mean, so it does make sense. I think sense. that was and a very clever way to do that. Very to clever. To get that technical information in so that we have it as backstory without spending 20 minutes of film boring most people to tears. Right. Yeah. No, no, that was a very clever way. And it was just, and it was neat because you're seeing like this park ride thing and Hammond even makes mention about how it's a ride. You're not supposed to get up and stuff like that. So you kind of see the Hammond that's in the book and the film in the beginning there with uh, Mm -hmm. the money-making thing. So, but no, I tell you what, that should not have been because you're not going to get an extinct (laughs) plant. (laughs) Yeah, just, it's one of those things that's always stuck out. Uh, uh, a little bit, even from the very beginning, you know, when I first saw the movie, that was a question that I had. And then I thought, oh, maybe after a few watchings, I'll come up with an answer for that. But no. Right. So we, we turn to you, our fans out there on the Twitters, on the Facebooks, uh, emailing us, calling our voicemail line. If you have a viable explanation for either of those questions that you would like to share with us, we would absolutely love to hear it. So find us. We are at CrichtonCast. So easy to find. That's the, the Twitter handle is at CrichtonCast, uh, Facebook.com slash CrichtonCast. You can email info at CrichtonCast. You can just go to CrichtonCast.com, and we have a contact form right there on the on the website, as well as comments on the posts and things like that. So uh, we even have a phone number. You can call and leave us a voicemail message, and uh, we might even play your voicemail message on the show. So that's definitely a, a great option for you. Yes. No, please, by all means, yeah, contact us one way or the other, and um, we're huge fans of this. Unfortunately, you know, it's not going to happen. We would love for there to be a Jurassic Park someday, because that would be pretty badass to see a dinosaur. (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, the oldest recovered and authenticated DNA um, was only 700,000 years old. So we not enough to go back to 5 million or 65 million years ago to get anything like that just yet. But you never know. You know, there are still dreamers and people out there that, uh, you know, they don't care about uh, if they should. They just want to do it. (laughs) 
And I think honestly, um, you know, if it, if it were something that they would try to do, I think they would put the controls in. You know, I, you know, I look at it, and I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm suffering from the same hubris that uh, you know Crichton is trying to say that that all these people had in the beginning. But I'm thinking they could figure out how to make it at least moderately safe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Um, I, I would assume that they wouldn't start off breeding T Rexes and Raptors and things like no. this. Like they would, you know. Hey, let's well, let's stick with let's stick with herbivores for a bit. See how it goes. That's it's one of my problems I have. Why would you breed something that can eat you? Yeah. You know, yeah, why didn't we just keep with the brontosauruses and stuff like that? You know, that was one thing that did bother me a little bit where you think to yourself, like, and the Hammond in the book, obviously, totally different than the Hammond in the film. But the Hammond in the film, like, he never would have bred a T-Rex that's going to kill you or anything like that. Like, you know, he would have been on the safer side, it seems. But, oh, which, yeah, that's which always brings been my up problem. an interesting uh, point from the book that we don't see in the movie. A discussion between Wu and Hammond where Wu is basically making that argument. He's like, listen, we've gotten to the point. We've, mm. we've made them as they were, as much as we can. But here's the thing. We can make them safer. We can make them right. friendly. We can make them look. You know, we can make a T-Rex look like a T-Rex and be all big and scary and everything, but still have it docile so we, we could give rides. <laughs> you know, we can have people, You could, hey, step on up, pay 15 bucks, jump on the back of this T-Rex and ride it around for a bit. Yeah. Like, he's talking about... We could make them docile. We could make them smaller. We could make them bigger. We could we can change anything we want to to make them more marketable. And that's the one time that we see Hammond step away from caring about money for just a second and see that he is that dinosaur nut that they've all been talking about because he's like, no, I want real dinosaurs. I want I them want... as real as they can be. Yeah, right. we've made changes for security. We've made changes for safety. We've made changes for legal reasons. But other than that, I want them to be as authentic as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's the the one time when we see you know him being given the opportunity to make more money off of it, going a different route and saying, "No, this is how I want it." Yeah. And Wu was very upset. You know, Wu was like, "No, I can, I can, I can do this. I can make this. You know, this safer. is the next thing." Yeah. And they're talking about uh, the possibility of making you know pet dinosaurs that they could sell. Um, and things like this, and you know, Hammond's not interested in that at all. Although he knows that his comp- competition thinks that he is. You know, no. uh, well, he points out that this guy Dodgson, who we only see briefly in the film, he plays a bigger part in the book as well. He does, yeah. Well, he does, and they also, you know, goes to the evil Hammond. He's such a salesperson and money guy because they even talk about when he's first trying to sell this park in genetics, and he's going around with this tiny elephant that they had um, scientifically, you know, they had engineered a miniature elephant, and he shows it off, and it's pretty and everything, but really that elephant's, you know, just a little mean rat and has, like, anger issues and all this other stuff, but, you know, he's covering all that up, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's using it as the sales pitch, but um, he can't can't recreate it. Yeah, they, no, they he's say he's all about constantly the money. worried every time this this elephant gets the sniffles because they haven't been able to recreate it. He can't replace it if it dies. Right. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting. I, I found that to be an interesting scene because, like like you said, we see Hammond being this money guy most of the time. But then when it comes down to talking about the dinosaurs, we see that deep down he's a dinosaur nut first, money guy second. Mm-hmm. No. Well. Now that we've talked this all through, Eric, I think my opinions changed a little bit because I've been waffling. But talking more about the book, you are right. The film I enjoy better than the book. I actually, 
this is one of those rare times where the movie is better than the book to me. And like I said, not to say that it's a bad book because it is not at all. It is a very, very good book. That just speaks to how great the movie is. Right. The fact that even though they started with this great book, they did all the right changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one to of the make big it ones, an amazing film. One of the biggest changes I think they made that made the film so much better was the the kids. In the book, they flip-flopped in ages. The boy was older mm-hmm. than the girl. And uh, if you remember the scene in the movie when Lex is in the car crying because Gennaro ran away. He left us. He left us. He left us. Yeah. That scene is Lex the entire book. <laughs> That's it how is. she is. She is this whiny baby. Whiny the whole book. The entire time. And of course, I mean, what they made her like six or seven in the book. Yeah, she was, you know, she was this little, little, girl. little girl in the book. So it's like, um, and they gave Lex all, or they gave Tim all the ability to he do was, stuff. He was the computer yeah. guy. He was, you know, he wasn't the just the dinosaur guy. He, was, you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't just the, the kid who knew about dinosaurs. He was also the kid who knew about computers. And he was the one who saves the day in the in the end. And Lex does nothing except whine and cry the entire time. And you entire get so time. tired of her. <laughs> right. No, you're right. A vast improvement. And to give her the computer skills and so split up their skills. So they had, I mean, it definitely made for a much more interesting characters. And that's probably why even the Muldoon character, even though he gets killed off in it, he was so much better in the film than he was in the book. And he needed to die because he had such an utmost respect and he knew that they were hunting him and everything like that. So he even makes mention of that when they first meet him at the pen. So um, everything just happened right in the film where I, it was just it was an improvement on something that was already great. Obviously, the book was great because it was enough content for three different movies. So, Yeah, it, it, just an amazing amount of content, like you said, and just really good. And it flows together well in the book. If they had made it a direct translation, if they had tried to make it a direct translation and then tried to squeeze it into two or two and a half hours, we would not uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because it would not have been a film that would have gotten us excited. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been a film that created an interest in this author for years and years and years to come. I mean, honestly, they just they worked magic with this. They took a great book and converted it with just enough changes to make it an even better movie and it's it's just phenomenal phenomenal movie yeah and when you can write a book and create a movie that changes an industry because paleontologists uh the interest in them spiked so hugely in the 90s that there are more paleontologists now than there were before this book and movie came out and more people doing research on these dinosaurs because of this book and this film specifically this film Uh, so that's an amazing feat right there yeah, absolutely. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's such a great movie. What I love about it is that it still holds up. You know, I watched it twice this past week to prepare for this show and I didn't feel tired of it at all. Uh, at even all. watching it twice in just a few days and even looking back at, you know, 1993 special effects, you think you watch that today, you're going to be disappointed. There were maybe a couple, I, the, the only one that stood out that I thought, oh, they could probably do that better today was the first scene with the Brachiosaurus. The very, very first one, when I was watching it on the bigger screen, mm-hmm. you could tell it was CGI. It was just yeah. one of those moments where you're like, oh, that's a CGI dinosaur. Right. But it was brief, and it was not intrusive. It was not take-you-out-of-the-moment type of bad graphics. It was just, you look at it and be like, okay, yeah, they've had 15 years. They they can do that a little better now. <clears throat> but not by that much. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the thing. And it's um, I think it's partly the mix of 
practical effects and CGI effects that this movie used that really makes it stand out and have the longevity that it does. Yeah. No, it's very true, and and it's not overdone at all. If you look at it, um, it's something like only 15 minutes of dinosaur time in the entire two-hour-long movie, and only six minutes of that was CGI. Nine minutes of it was animatronic. So it was amazing for its day. Computer processing was nuts, but it was really only 15 minutes. It's just like a good, scary movie where you don't always see the bad guy. It's just that it's there and around you, and they created such a great park because if you think about it, that Jeep tour, they don't even see dinosaurs for so much of it. It's like it's a failure, <laughs> but it's it's just alluding to the fact that you're surrounded by dinosaurs, even though you only saw them for 15 minutes out of the 127 minutes that this movie was. Um, it was so just to, an amazing uh, job, yeah. Dinosaurs on this dinosaur tour, yes, <laughs> right, yes. So, uh, well. We obviously have a lot to talk about. And so there will be a second episode, and I think we're going to go right to that. I know we were going to be doing these in order, but we've got to get into The Lost World next and really discuss more of Jurassic Park during The Lost World is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, especially like like we just said, there were our scenes directly from this book in The Lost World movie. we got the little girl with the compies, uh, you know, Hammond's death scene uh, projected onto somebody else, basically. Got the the whole T Rex waterfall tongue situation um, mm-hmm. that's directly out of this book. Um, you know, it's just, and I, I I feel we'll probably find more upon rewatching and and reading the the Lost World novel, which <clears throat> is going to definitely be an interesting discussion and definitely a lot different uh, than this one. Yeah. Well, and as uh, Eric said, if you have any idea how we can get ourselves a extinct plant or any thoughts at all, please let us know. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, CrichtonCast, very easy. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 802-JURASSIC um, or just go to CrichtonCast.com and click on the contact and submit something right there and send us a message. But we would love to hear from you. Uh, whether it's on the extinct plant and how to do it or anything else, uh, story or tidbit you might have that's Jurassic Park, uh, Lost World uh, rated, we would love to hear it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> we're hoping also to have a very special treat for you guys on that next episode. Um, we've got a we've got an interview lined up that is pretty amazing. I don't want yes. don't want to give anything away just yet until we have it in the can in hand, you know, ready to go just in case, but I think it's I think it's pretty exciting. I am uh way stoked about it. Uh, we were hoping to have it ready for this episode, but um unless something changes uh, in the next couple of days, it's probably not going to be the case, but we'll definitely get it out either as a separate piece or uh, you know, as part of our Lost World episode. As far as our Lost World episode, yeah. No, you yeah, have just a little, bit of, a little bit of timing issue there. But thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We hope you have enjoyed. Uh, definitely see the film. Um, we always say definitely read the book, but in this case, the film was the favorite. <laughs>